I'm so excited. Thank you very much for joining us for our second podcast. Today's podcast, we're going to cover education on the reservation. This is the Thunder Valley Community Development Corporation, and you're joining the conversation between Matt Cole and Tierra Little. Matt oversees the Workforce Development and Education Initiative, and Tierra Little is the Manager of Education Development and a 2018 NACA Fellow. So our conversation will cover the future of education on the Pioneer Reservation, ideas, challenges, and what we can expect from the Thunder Valley Community Development Corporation Initiative on Education. So we're going to have a lot of fun with this. Please join our conversation here on the Thunder Valley CDC podcast. Youth and families. Empowering Lakota youth and families. Empowering Lakota youth and families to improve the health, culture, and environment of our communities. To improve the health, culture, and environment of our communities. To improve the health, culture, and environment of our communities. Through the healing and strengthening. Through the healing and strengthening. Through the healing and strengthening of cultural identity. Of cultural identity. Of cultural identity. Of cultural identity. This is our mission statement. Uh, so I grew up kind of mostly living with my mom and my papa, so my grandpa, out in the Mission Flats area. And so I spent a lot of time in, in Pine Ridge. Uh, I spent my early years of education at Pine Ridge Elementary, kindergarten, first grade. Um, and I remember there I, I got to kind of sit to the side <clears throat> and do my kind of like an IEP style for certain subjects that I was pretty far along in and that had to do a lot with my papa. Um, <clears throat> I remember sitting at the table, it seemed like almost every night, and we'd be sorting beans and getting them ready, separating the good from the bad and everything, getting getting the beans ready for supper the next day, like getting ready to wash them and everything. But we'd count them and that's how I learned how to add, subtract, multiply and divide. And so kind of taking that along with reading we always kind of had some reading games laying around or I just watched the news with my papa um and so going into just even early elementary I I yeah got to sit to the side oftentimes and kind of go at my own pace and then later on um I bounced over to Red Cloud Indian School in second grade and that kind of stopped um this the whole class was kind of going going in in one unit and which was fine um but reflecting back now like I wonder what would have happened if I could have continued being challenged in different subjects at my own pace and so I'm thinking a lot about now on on different systems and different subjects and what the separation of different subjects even means um, starting to explore more of what project-based learning is what land-based learning is and just trying to think of ways on how we can reimagine the education system today to fit us more to, to our needs and our own learning styles. And I say this all the time. <clears throat> I think that one of the reasons why I'm, I guess, like, quote unquote, successful by the definitions that we know today, like in terms of education, could be because my learning style just happened to match up with how the classroom was run. 
um, being really observant, being quiet in the classroom, just kind of soaking everything in. And so that's kind of my learning style. Um, I guess in that way, I'm sort of, I tend to kind of linger on the outside of the circle and just observe and take everything in. And I think a lot of that too just comes from wanting to be a sort of like, I don't know, like, like a grandma or like an older person in a way. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, just watching over my sisters and my younger, my younger siblings growing up. Um, and also just paying attention to how my papa carried himself. And that's very much how he was. Like, he was a pretty quiet guy, but like when he spoke, like you, you listened. Um, and he let us learn on our own too, oftentimes, and would kind of gear us back in the right spot if we needed to, or if he just got really tired and like needed to be like, hey, behave now. Like, All right. No, that's really a good story because whenever I think about like my own personal education on a reservation, I had a very challenging time whenever I got out of elementary and moved into middle school. And my grades showed it, my attendance showed it, and um, I got down to failing points. And I remember going to the principal's office with my father, and the principal just got down and said, we need to figure something out for Arlo. And then I don't know what it was, but I just busted out crying just cried in front of the principal. I was so embarrassed. I cried in front of my dad. I was embarrassed of that too. And then I said, I just don't want to do it anymore. And one thing that my dad did was that whenever we walked out of the school, he said that you don't have to go back. And that was in seventh grade. And that year I thought, all right, I'm not going to go to school anymore. That's the best feeling ever. And then what my dad did was that he got me in touch with one of his friends, Larry Emerson. He's a Diné man from Shiprock, New Mexico. And Larry sat down with me, and we I would go to his house every evening, and then we would do classwork in the style that he thought that was best for me because he comes from a, a, a native perspective style of education, and... I can attribute to almost all my education to those few months that I spent with Larry. And my, what was really amazing is I, I identified my learning style. And then from there, I, I mean, it was interesting because I never was able to be a classroom sitter and I was never able to apply myself in the traditional sense of a classroom setting. But when it comes down to learning stuff, I know how to learn something on my own just because Larry taught me that. And that was from uh, a native understanding of how to teach. I think when we hear a story like Tierra's and we hear a story like yours is the question we're asking ourselves is what is the state of education on Pine Ridge? And what we really need to be considering is what is the state of education for individual students who are attending schools within the boundaries of the Pine Ridge Reservation. Because school was designed in an industrialized model to produce folks who are ready to enter into the workforce. And when you're trying to get folks moving into the workforce, you're not trying to create individualized widgets that each are unique and each has its own gift for moving the machine or whatever it is forward. You're trying to create these cookie cutter examples of what is possible. And so when I reflect on the question of what is it that we need to be able to do to better serve students here on Pine Ridge, 
is to further indigenize the education so that what students are learning and I've spent the majority of my adult life here, but one of the things I've learned from folks is that every person is is imbued with a gift from the creator, right? And it takes you a while to figure out what that gift is. But our education model is is really truncating students' abilities to go out and find those gifts on their own. And I think when Tierra references things like project-based and place-based learning, what we're seeing there and where it feels almost new uh, in the field of education for a lot of uh, Western school systems is something that happened in Indian country for generations. Intergenerational teaching, the story that you offer of your father's friend and you, your papa and you. And when we can return to more of that intergenerational teaching that recognizes each student's individualized gifts instead of applying a one-size-fits-all industrialized Western model of education to students, that's when we'll truly start to see success um, here on Pine Ridge. Tara, can you talk, I I remember you mentioned about uh, the evolution of school systems. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? What I was saying was, there are four there are four different distinct eras um the first being indigenous education which was largely focusing on pre-colonial times and our own educational systems that we had on our own before contact and even early on right before reservations were even created and then the second is uh indian education and so talking about boarding schools um, government schools, things like that, and then the, the th- and then the third is Native American education, which is in the self determination era, so around the 60s, 70s, 80s, when schools were finally allowed to incorporate language and culture, language and culture into the classroom, which was a huge step forward for sure. Um, and now we're entering into the fourth era, if we're not already in it, is back to indigenous education, but in contemporary times, so trying to think about, well, what is indigenous education in pre-colonial times? Like, how can we get as close to that as possible? And what does it look like to be to be Native now in the 21st century? What does that look like in terms of education? What does that look like? Um, not, just, not just in education systems, like institutionally, but like in our homes too. So how can we bridge that gap? Like I remember growing up, my attitude not even my attitude, my just like way of being. I carried myself a completely different way in school than I did out of school. Um, an example is in school, it's super quiet, um, really timid, really shy. But at home, I laughing around with my sisters all the time, joking around, um, teasing each other, things like that, running around. And at school, I, I guess another example, like I, I would be scared to to play basketball against the guys because I didn't want to make them feel bad. (laughs) Like, you know, like being aware, though, of those, I guess, social perceptions of what a guy is supposed to be able to do and what a a girl is supposed to be able to do. I didn't want to shame them out. And I knew that was like the norm in school. And then at home, I could do whatever I want. Like, I could beat all my boy cousins. Like, I could. It was cool and it was fun and, and there was no shame. And if you lost, it was your fault. If you were crying, it was like, well, tough up. Like, um, if you were pouting, like, there's no reason to pout. And so we'd get chewed out for pouting and things like that when it came to sports or when it came to just competing in general. Um, 
And it was more of like, if you're pouting, then you need to get better. So work on that. So then it was on us. Um, but in school, I, just with everything going on and everything that happens in an institution like that, like that gets really convoluted. That's really interesting, too, because like in our culture, uh, our Plains culture is that we're, we're, we're really heavily um, on somebody who's good at something is say like there's if we go back to pre-colonial times and we talk about the best person that shot arrows right and that person was praised and that was and was revered and they were kind of like um revolved around so like you if you were a great ball player here today in in though in that education era they would say i want i want my children to be around tiara because she knows how to shoot a three-pointer. You know, I, never, I wasn't really good at threes ever. <laughs> and I'm out of shape now, but yes, I see your point. Yep. When you think about how education is today, it's so everybody wins, and it's taken out the competition, taken the competition out of how things work. And when you think about our society, the Ogalakoto Oyate, we think about our society, there was a lot of competition involved with our the way we did things, which is not the way it's done today in the school setting. And it's different, and things have changed. How do you feel about those things that are... I think there's an element of, well, stereotype threat that's kind of intertwined in everything and how we interact, especially in school. Um, I first learned about that term like when I first went to college, uh, and it's... How are you familiar with what stereotype threat is? So stereotype threat is um, basically being aware of all of the stereotypes that your identity falls under. And you know, you take that into the classroom or you take that into any setting. And you statistically, like research shows, you do a lot poorer than you would have if you were never, if, if you didn't have those stereotypes attached to your identity, which is messed up. That is interesting. Yeah. Um, and there's a ton of studies that trace that back to it affects your test scores. Um, we all know about the anxiety students get going into a test and who statistically is likely to do better. Um, and a lot of that is because of stereotypes. And a lot of that is because of the systems, too, that were created to... to a lot of the systems that were created specifically for students in certain demographics or certain you know, backgrounds. Um, so that's, that's one thing that comes to mind. Um, I guess another example ties into the one I shared before. So at first kind of being scared to play against the boys because I, I didn't want to, you know, shame them out or anything, but then that evolved into, I wasn't scared to play with them anymore, but like I couldn't play to my full ability. Like there was just something holding me back and I knew it. And like, even after every game or after every scrimmage or whatever, I just like, I could do better. Like, why am I being so timid? Um, so that's an example in sports, an example in school. Um, See, this is where I, I, I often wonder, how does education look today in our society, knowing that we had these expectations of what, uh, Lakota person is today, and that's kind of where we, where I wonder how we move forward with education. Because if we go back in time and we look at how we treat each other as um, young learners, it was kind of hard for that person to learn. But then at the same time, it's kind of 
also in we're in an era where you want to be able to build this person but not have to tear him down at the same time it's all scaffolding too like indigenous education pre-colonial like we were pros at being able to scaffold our, our children and our young adults and you know just like telling stories but it's up to that person i guess this is an example but but like telling a story and it's up to that person to interpret the meaning and and to figure out how like what lesson they can pull from that story so that they can be a better person and, and keep learning and keep growing in the right ways um so scaffolding like not directly giving answers so like not producing students who just regurgitate information and memorize information but it's like instilling values and constantly scaffolding that part that enables that person to navigate the world in the way that's best for them um so yeah so indigenous education pre-colonial heck yeah like a perfect example then you move in though to to indian education and boarding schools completely wiped out right like you're just taught to it's a factory model. Yeah, it was a bad time. Their, their hair was cut and, and they were told not to speak their language. It's such a strange thing to, to run into because now we're, we're in this process of building culture and language and at the same time, uh, modern, era, modern era education. Where are we at now? I think the big, um, the big umbrella that everything falls under is for sure like reclamation and, and like taking that self-determination era a step further in with indigenous education now. Um, so constantly asking, what is it like to be, what's, what does it mean to be a native person in today's society? Um, I always go back to that. The challenges that are being faced by indigenous communities in the United States are challenges related to education that many post-colonial communities are facing, whether that's Australia, whether that's parts of East Africa, whether that's uh, New Zealand. And so this movement in where, where what we consider modern education and indigenous education intersect with one another is not just a question that we're asking ourselves here on Pine Ridge. Uh, it's a question folks are asking nationally and internationally as well. How does it look forward in our communities based on reservation life? Because, I mean, for example, you talked about how going to other places and getting a idea of identity, developing that competency really allowed you to be more understanding of how your role in the community Made, makes a makes a difference into the into the tribe. I think overall, this is a chance to reimagine what indigenous education could look like. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity to really do something about not not just sitting in a room and reimagining. You know, how do we want our schools to look? One major difference is we're a big land based community, and so something that I imagine would come fairly easily compared to other communities who are located not as widespread um, rurally. Uh, for us, it'll be a little bit more easier, I imagine, to incorporate land-based curriculum. What is land-based curriculum? So we have the, the garden out here, for instance. So Thunder Valley is all about um, an ecosystem of opportunity, everything not working in silos, but uh, working with each other and in communication with each other. And that's how they thrive and that's how they keep growing. So an, an example is right here, like right outside with the the with the farm, with the garden, with the chickens. Um, like that's, 
they do their own curriculum already, um, or the Food Sovereignty Initiative has already developed their own curriculum, and they're beginning to share them with with schools and different educational programs, uh, and also bringing students in to learn about to learn about food sovereignty. Like, what does that even mean to learn about the ecosystem that's just within outside in the garden, um, and to learn about how that flows into this larger ecosystem of community and sustainability and what does it mean to be regenerative and to have complete control over our own sustainability without having to rely on uh, like going to Rapid City, for instance. That's an example that we already have. Another example could be just visiting our own sacred sites that are around here or just going outside in our backyard and, and looking at learning about all of the different plants and medicines that that are here that we overlook all the time. Um, that's a concrete example. How do you evaluate that and then test that and then certify that? Because that's the, that's the problem that I think a lot of reservation communities are facing is that they want to have their schools for their children more culturally based, language based, and something that would give children a belonging to the tribe, competence that they're doing something well, you know, and the ability to influence their own tribal members. Those things, how do you turn that all around and make that the education system so that it works for the community? Because right now, a child has to get on a bus and drive to a state school or whatever, and then they, get out, they have to learn how to get their A's and B's and C's and uh, passing grades, and then they have to be evaluated by taking tests, and then from that, then they get certified. But what I'm asking is, how do you certify someone, a student, in that manner of what you're talking about? A lot of educational planning um, is done as backwards planning. What is it that we want students to know at the end of the day, at the end of the lesson, at the end of the year, and then as educators figuring out ways to determine, has this child learned this? Has this child not learned this? And that doesn't change any different if you're sitting down and taking a bubble and Scantron test. I don't even know if they even still have those anymore. Uh, versus if you're going to Peshla or Matatipula and being able to tell the stories uh, as a young person and the lessons that are learned from those spaces. So really, it's a lot of work on the adults within the community to really sit down and say, okay, what is it that we value? for young people to be able to know, to learn, to be able to uh, pass on to future generations that are coming behind them as well. And I think one of the challenges that many of the schools here face, whether they're you know, BIE direct operation schools, whether they're BIE grant schools, public schools, parochial schools, is that Lakota language and Lakota culture is an add-on. It's not what the curriculum is grounded in. It's not what the school itself is necessarily grounded in. And so when we start to reimagine a model where indigenous ways of knowing uh, is truly valued and that's the center of where we're at 
and, and we scaffold out that curriculum and those activities that young people become involved in is where you start to see the educational model and the educational system flip. So we're essentially decolonizing our education system and reinstituting indigenous thoughts and education. How are we doing that? The main part of this work in school development um, is community organizing. So we're trying to figure out what does it mean to have a community-based, community-led school like Truly. And a lot of that is community organizing. This whole first year, community engagement is a huge chunk of that development. And it is throughout these next three years. Um, we're only in in the third month right now of just my role here at Thunder Valley and in the third month of the fellowship and the third month of this development process. And a lot of what Matt and I have been doing is just laying the foundation and getting ready to go out into the community and have more of these conversations. We've been having conversations already. Um, I've spoken with a number of people here in the community um, had some conversations with people over, you know, in the Rapid City area, and even peers who, like, I've gone to school with, uh, professors, mentors, a few of them who are from either this community or they're indigenous, from other indigenous communities. Um, learning a lot from NACA and the folks down in Albuquerque and with the network. And so those conversations have have started, but not at the trajectory that we're capable of doing yet. So one of the things that we're working on is expanding our team. So starting to form design teams is one of the big, one of the big, I guess, uh, what would you call it, like milestones. Um, so the plan right now anyways is to have uh, design teams starting to form by the end of January. And... That's just recognizing, too, that we're only two people. You know, Matt's on this part-time right now, hoping to move full-time, so it'd be two of us full-time on this. But school development's a big job, and <clears throat> we need a team. And so, yeah, so a lot of what I've been doing is just working on laying the foundation, um, going to fellowship convenings, you know, being really involved in professional development and taking advantage of those opportunities. Um doing some site visits. I've already gotten to do a few site visits and kind of, uh, I guess in a way, scouting different schools and different things that our design teams can all explore together. Maybe not even just the design teams, but even having a few community members along with us on certain trips in the coming year. Um, those are some of the things that we've been kind of dreaming big about. And so we're looking for funding to help make things like that possible. So that's one of four pillars, I guess, that we're focusing on. So, so far I mentioned community engagement, um, funding. The other two are conceptual implementation, so developing the conceptual framework, which includes curriculum development. And the fourth one is governance and leadership, and which is an essential part in any organization. There needs to be some sort of structure. You know, one of the things I'm wondering now is I want to know how much... How many entities are involved when you're talking about building a school? Right off the bat, I can think of like how a school is influenced. And I can think of how the government is influencing it, how the transportation is affecting it, how what sort of things are involved in developing a school? What we know is that we have to be intentional with this work. We have to approach it with a sense of urgency, and we have to dream big. 
But at the same time, that requires us getting down to some of those nuts and bolts issues. And as Tierra previously mentioned, a large part of what we will be doing moving forward will be driven by the conversations that we're having with community members, that we're having with uh, parents such as yourself, as grandmas and grandpas, and, and students also, about what it is that they're looking from their education. And more so of maybe not as much who is involved in that, because we know there's going to be a number of players that, that are going to have to be present at the table. That's uh, a pretty good pun as we sit here at this table. Uh, but also that uh, there are things that we don't even know at this point. And, and we have to be able to exist in this space of uncertainty with our eyes still on a clear goal of what it is that we're looking for for students. Um, and that is complex, and that is hard, um, because, you know, my background has been in Indian education and Native education, uh, I guess now moving more towards Indigenous education with, with Tierra in this space, but also abroad, um, and also working with refugee communities. And what my experience has been is that the governments, whether it's the U.S. government, whether it's the uh, Bhutanese government, when it comes to education and what that meant to uh, essentially try to break indigenous people uh, was very intentional. You know, you mentioned earlier haircut, inability or punishment for speaking language uh, in a boarding school sort of era. Uh, that, that was intentional. That was by design. Uh, you can look at practices of indirect colonial rule uh, pretty much from the first time that colonial settlers showed up on the shores wherever that was. You know, as late as the 1960s, you're starting to see freedom movements in, in Africa at that point. And, and so as we consider this and we consider how intentional those individuals were at working to try and uproot uh, culture and ways of knowing from a land base and from a people, we have to be equally as intentional as we look to rectify those wrongs that are, are historical, but also even those wrongs that exist today. Um, funding for Native students in South Dakota is inequitable when compared with their white peers in other school districts. There are levels of systematic, institutional, and individual racism that negatively impacts Native students, whether they're in the Rapid City School District, whether they're over in Tide County or here on Pine Ridge. Um, and really figuring out as a community, and to a degree I've started to include myself in this more and more as my son is educated here, right? Um, I recognize I'm a, a minority here in this piece, but with working with young people here for the last 14 years, 15 years going on here shortly, um, even me myself, I've been uh, guilty of not focusing on that intentionality sometimes. And it was like, this is working in another school district, so let's try and bring it here and see if it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, who are we going to point fingers at? Who's to blame for this? Rather than understanding at a certain level, the system itself is broken. And so you can start to repair little pieces of that at a time. I think about it as if you had like a glass window that shattered into four or five pieces. The parts are still there. Uh, it's how you put them back together that makes that window function or not. Uh, and if you don't do it with some sort of intentionality, you're, you're just constantly looking through broken glass.
now that we have the ability to look at the broken glass and get an idea of what we want a school to look like in our communities and getting the players together and evaluating what is essential in a school, just based on where we're at now, what does that school look like? Before I answer that question, I just want to say that or make clear that um, that as a community, in any community, in any community, there's its complexities, even like in the general overall like uh, mainstream mainstream society there are complexities that exist and so here as a community we have our own complexities too that we're allowed to let flow and to let exist and keeping that in mind and and, and going out and having conversations um it's not about it's not about shutting down any kinds of ideas and it's not about shutting down viewpoints or or perspectives it's about going into those conversations with open arms and being like, like me as an individual, I have a ton of my own ideas as a community member that are probably going to be reflected in the school design plan when, when that's completed and finished. I guess the main thing is just as a community, we're allowed to have our own complexities um, that coexist with each other. And that's okay. Um, you know, like debates happen. Uh, people individuals have their own opinion on what the right way is other individuals have maybe a completely different way of what the right way is and you know that's okay and there's certain ways for that to communicate and kind of run smoothly together like there's even learning points in in certain points of like when when heads are butted or whatever um but yeah just the main part is, is just as a community we're allowed to have our own complexities and I think that's really important to remember when going into any kind of development work and creating something that hasn't been created before here in our community so having complete control over how this school's going to look right now you know so just being able to dream big sitting in a room with the focus group um with a group of students with a group of young young college students with a group of young adults in the community with a group of sitting in a group or in a room with a bunch of different people with different perspectives combined there's going to be like a plethora of ideas that come out um so right now we're at the point of just encouraging like the craziest ideas to just come out and then later on we'll kind of dig through them and pick out well, what are the common themes that people are saying what do people want to see in our community what needs to be in our community and so when it comes time to talk to different players um, at different levels whether that's here in our community statewide or even nationally um, we have the voices of 200 people on our backs and that's way more powerful going up to say like a politician for instance being like, yeah, we have this amazing idea for a school. And he, we also talked to 200 people and being able to show that and being able to show those trends, like that's way more powerful because they operate like on our needs. And so in that way too, it's like a bridge. Um, there's a lot of power in, in community voice as a collective. And so I said before, it's mostly community organizing work and we're just now getting started. And um, <clears throat> I think the... The ultimate goal is, well, to have a school in three years' time to open the doors, but also just to to work in harmony with the other educational institutions that already exist here in our community. The conversations I'm most excited about having are with educators in schools who are really pushing the limits 
And we know that certain institutions and certain certain governing bodies, you know, they have their limits, and that's okay. But like even within those, there are, there are people who are really trying to push those as much as they could, um, as much as they can. And you know, those are the types of conversations I'm really excited about because more often than not, you're gonna have some you're gonna have some conversations with individuals who are super super innovative, super creative, people who take take risks, who aren't afraid, people who are I don't know just really aware. And I think we all have all of those types of characteristics within each of ourselves but in different ways and so it's a lot of just having conversations and just listening and hearing what the trends are I think one of the things that I I'm most excited to see like 10 years down the road is like having a network of our own indigenous educators um indigenous education advocates having a network of of those those people where we maybe we come to a conference every year, you know, folks from over at Little Moon, over in Pine Ridge, over in Rocky Ford, um, from Head Start to high school and to college, and even at OLC, having some kind of indigenous conference just for our community or for, I don't know, that would be really cool. Or professional development opportunities each month. Just being able to collaborate, like truly, truly collaborate with educators across the board. Yeah, just being able to work as a collective when it comes to indigenous education and as we enter in into this fourth era of indigenous education, what that looks like today. It's super critical to work alongside and collaborate with educators across the board, not just on on Pine Ridge, but even like in Rapid City or over in Bennett County or over in Oryx, just connecting with those folks. And we've already had a few conversations already with educators from different areas within the community, and they've been really good. And so that's why I'm really excited about, well, what can not only this school look like, but what can our network of Indigenous educators look like in our own community in 10 years' time? And being really intentional about, being really intentional about that starting now. Thank you very much for joining us. This is the Thunder Valley CDC podcast. On next week, we're going to be covering the Lakota language, revitalizing, and where we're at now. So join us next time on the Thunder Valley CDC podcast. Oha hecha